You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. Where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Caroline, and today we're talking with Pam Cantor. Pam studied the impact of trauma on childhood development at Cornell. After 9-11, New York City asked her to counsel children struggling in the aftermath. That effort became Turnaround for Children, a nonprofit provider of tools and services supporting children that had experienced trauma. Dr. Cantor is a leading expert on childhood development. She's an advocate for trust-based relationships as an antidote to toxic stress. Developed with Linda Darling-Hammond, her childhood development videos have had over 7 million views. Let's listen in as Pam talks to Tom about the impacts of stress and productive practices that unlocks brain chemistry that can counter the toxic effects of stress. Pamela Cantor, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thank you so much, Tom, for having me. Thank you. What a what a treat. Um, we've been we've been threatening to do this for a long time. Um, let's start in the Wayback Machine. I want to go back to Cornell Medical School and find out why you decided to study trauma and childhood development. So the reason that I went to medical school was in fact to study trauma. I was um, first of all, somebody who had experienced trauma as a child. So a lot of the experiences that form my passion about this is that experience coupled with some really extraordinary help that I got along the way. Um, and one part of that help was a physician. So I was going to go to medical school and I was going to learn how to do uh, the kind of magic I saw him do uh, with me. So in medical school, you start to understand deeply that our bodies and our brains are one integrated system and that you learn all about how things work when everything goes well, but there's a point at which you start to learn what causes things to go awry. So this idea that we are this system, interlocking system of biologic mechanisms, and that those biologic mechanisms can be driven to healthy developmental places or to places uh, of disease, of things when, when things go wrong. So once you know the biologic mechanisms, then you start to be able to understand big processes like learning or trauma. And you start to see by understanding the mechanisms what you can do to take a process that has gone awry and turn it back to a healthy course. So for me, one of the processes that I wanted to understand really is all about stress and what stress does to the developing brain, what it does to the learning centers of the brain. And what began for me as understanding trauma really began uh, a whole process of starting to understand how a whole healthy child and a curious, engaged learner come about. So I can talk to you in endless detail about those processes. I don't know how much more detail you want to go into. So help me 
help me here. Yeah, so, um, so this has been, uh, I think, important in your in your work um, since then. Uh, the importance of context. Um, you you frequently talk about um, three things that that you learned that that um, experience dependent growth. Um, astonishing malleability and and that context matters. Sure. Um, those are important things for educators to to know about, right? Absolutely. I think um, one fundamental thing for educators to know is that as human beings, most of the growth of our brain happens after we're born. So just that fact alone means that experiences that we have and relationships that we have are going to grow the brain, for good or bad. So the brain is made up of tissue that is the most susceptible to change from experience of any tissue in the human body. So astounding malleability, experience-dependent growth, and the role of context are the three fundamental principles of human development. But to understand how context gets inside to exert these effects, one of the prime examples is stress. Um, stress is the most common naturally occurring example of negative context. And love and trust uh, and the human relationship is the most common naturally occurring example of positive context. And if you think about just those two systems, the stress system is mediated by the hormone cortisol. The love-trust system is mediated by the hormone oxytocin. And both of these hormones are headed to the same target in the brain, which is the limbic system. And that happens to be the center of the brain that is involved in emotion and cognition. So it has three structures that are critical for learning, the prefrontal cortex for focus and attention, the hippocampus for memory, and the amygdala for emotion. So when we experience stress, cortisol floods the body and the brain, and it produces the fight-flight-freeze response, which if it's adaptive and it's not too severe, helps us prepare, helps us focus, and all of those functions of attention and concentration and focus are limbic functions. But when children have overwhelming stress, like the kind of stress that's produced by ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, the overwhelming stress can affect the limbic system in such a way that children who have greater than four ACEs are highly susceptible to a condition called toxic stress. And that is when the stress mechanism is locked in the on position. And children who experience toxic stress are easily triggered and struggle to focus in school. But the story of oxytocin is, is the story that helps us understand where resilience comes from and why children can overcome experiences like this. Because oxytocin, again, goes to the same system, 
And oxytocin actually enables kids to manage stress, to protect them from the damage from cortisol, and help them become resilient to future stress. And it's the more powerful of the two hormones. But the thing that triggers oxytocin are relationships. So relationships that are consistent and caring and trustful are powerful enough to trigger that system. So when we think about relationships, we're not just talking about being nice to a child. We're talking about a human experience of trust and connection that is powerful enough to mitigate the effects that cortisol can have on on the developing brain. So when you talk about, you and I have had conversations about advisories and all kinds of other structures that schools can have, you might not have thought that you were actually talking about influencing the biology of children, but we are. Yeah, I've been thinking about that. The the fall of 99... um, when we started the Gates Foundation and I had the chance to visit about 500 schools, I was really introduced to hundreds of schools that uh, were small and relationship-based and had powerful advisory systems uh, where there was um, sustained adult relationships, um, high trust, a very intentional uh, culture developed and uh, I, I was blown away by the developmental impact that it has on young people mm-hmm. and when I yep. met you you explained the biology of what what I had seen and I, I think both of us believe that what given what's happening in the world that these th- that the understanding of the biology and the link back to uh, trust relationships and and uh, and how those are expressed often in secondary environments in a, through an advisory system uh, is just more and more important. It, it absolutely is. And I want to I wanna mention something else as we're talking about biology. And that is that I, I, I think it's been somewhat known about relationships being important and and maybe some folks have understood the role of oxytocin and um, the the ability to mitigate uh, stress. But I think the thing that is less talked about is the understanding that the social context, the relational context of children's experience drives their cognitive development. Now, this has to be hugely important for educators to understand. And it cuts against a movement in the education literature where I think there had been for a long time this idea that cognitive development was this pure and separate thing and that true learning somehow meant that we had to focus on cognitive development. But the fact is there is no such thing as cognitive development that isn't fueled literally at the level of neurons by social activation. 
And we know this because the brain is an electrical circuit. And what causes the electrical activity of the brain, where the energy source is, it is in the human connections of children's lives. That's what gets the electrons to move. And it's true, it's true for children and, but it's true for most of us, uh, as adults that we mm-hmm. were motivated by relationship and we grow in community. We do. We do. But when we talk about a skill like reading, just so I can put the finest point on this, and if we look at a PET scan of a child reading, the parts of the brain that are going to light up are sight, hearing, the amygdala, the emotion center of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, the processing part of the brain. All of those sections of the brain will light up and wiring between them is what is happening that is causing that. Right. Okay, so a child reading and a child being read to is an experience that drives a complex skill. And there are many, many complex skills, but I think it's really critical for people to understand how profound social activation of cognitive development is. Pam, I'd, I'd love to have you give a, a quick origin story of Turnaround. Well, why did you leave your private practice and create Turnaround for children? Um, it was, it really had a great deal to do with 9-11 and the 9-11 attacks in 2001. I was a practicing psychiatrist uh, with a specialty in trauma, obviously, and uh, the New York City DOE was very concerned about the impact of 9-11 on New York City's public school kids. And they asked me to help lead a study with the Mailman School of Public Health asking the question, what was the effect of 9-11 going to be on New York City's public school kids? And, and this, told this is our uh, dear friend Harold Levy, I should note. And yes. It was yes. Part, partly his insight, I think that kids are going to need more attention. And it was definitely Harold Levy and and his deputy chancellor, Judith Rizzo, who who brought me into this. Um, You know, Judy Judy was uh, deputy superintendent here in Tacoma next door to me. She and Rudy Crew were my uh, mentors in my first year. I didn't know and that. I that is so hadn't, funny. Hadn't, hadn't made Judy, that connection, but Judy is uh, an amazing person, and um, so they're just super thoughtful um, system leaders that recognize the need for for more counseling support. Um, and and they asked actually some pro- profound questions. But yes, one of the one of the first issues on their mind was what were the supports that kids were going to need. But here's the thing that was surprising. We expected the greatest intensity of symptoms to be in ground zero, and they weren't. They were in the communities and schools uh, of deepest poverty. So when I went to visit those schools, 
Um, and I remember vividly going into a first grade class in an elementary school in the South Bronx and a little boy coming up to me with a drawing. Uh, his teacher had asked the kids to do drawings about 9-11 and his drawing had these two little boxes in the corners with smoke coming out. And in the foreground were two stick figure boys with guns pointed at each other. And the message in the drawing was, I'm scared to come to school every day, and 9-11 is very far away. So I didn't know how typical this school was of other schools, and uh, that led to my going to lots of schools that were showing up in our data, and the pattern I found in all of these schools were uh, lots of kids struggling, but a system that didn't seem to know what the effects of stress were on the developing learning systems in the brains of these children. And this wasn't a few kids and it wasn't a few schools. So to me, there was this thing that wasn't seen and it became uh, the core insight certainly underneath turnaround out of this recognition that adversity doesn't just happen to children. It happens inside their brains and bodies through the biologic mechanism of stress. At the same time, I saw a system that thought it was doing everything under the sun to improve academics and not understanding the role of stress and not understanding the idea of developing how children become learners in the first place or addressing the barriers to that. And that's the core idea that caused me to leave my practice and and found Turnaround. And what we were going to do is develop tools and services and practices to enable any school to become a positive developmental force and academic force in a child's life. Um, and that was uh, that was the founding of Turnaround. And we've had our foot in science and another foot in the application of science to practice ever since. Right. So you, you work directly with about 100 schools, mostly in New York, but you your influence has been even much uh, broader than that. You, one example would be the Building Blocks for Learning framework that you yeah. worked on with uh, Brooke Stafford Brizard. We'll include a, a picture of that in the show notes, but how would you describe what that is? So one of the things that that happened for us is that we were really curious about this idea about how any child becomes a curious and engaged learner. Because if there were pathways by which children acquire the skills for productive learning, then in principle you could design schools and classrooms around that. And and intentionally build those skills um, into the academic work of school. So we read a big literature on this, and the framework um, that, that you see is a framework that fell out of the literature. We didn't seek to build it. But the criteria for every skill on the framework is has to be a malleable skill, meaning you can build it. It's not a trait and it has to have a high correlation with achievement. So the big aha for us, though, 
had to do with those bottom two rows where you have these foundational skills like self-regulation, executive function, growth mindset. And when you think about it, at least in turnaround experience, many children entering kindergarten, if they've been exposed to adversity, have uneven development of those skills. Then we also uncovered a literature that demonstrated, I'm talking about Ann Maston, Carol Dweck, others, these strong correlations between foundational skills and higher order skills like self-direction and agency. So that told us that not only are kids who are exposed to adversity experiencing uneven development of these skills, they're at risk to not develop the higher order skills they're going to need for more advanced learning and things like problem solving and analytic skills. So what, what happened for us was the biggest aha of all, and that was realizing that 20th century learning was never designed to develop the learner. It was designed for efficient content delivery and testing whether content delivery stuck, and then using testing to come to certain assumptions about who should go on to higher education or not. But this idea that we now have a science that could tell us actually how 21st century learning could be designed to develop the learner, a learner who can learn anything. So this, this is what produced the building blocks. And now I think Turnaround, but many other organizations, are thinking through how do we want to operationalize this? Which skills are important to sequence together? And we hear all the time about organizations uh, that are working on this in different ways. And this is core to what Turnaround is doing. We're building the tools to support operationalizing building blocks in schools. You know, it's a, a beautiful construct. It's really useful. Um, one thing that we've learned in uh, the, the study of the future of work in uh, the last three years is that uh, that agency is really critical, that it's becoming more and more mm -hmm. critical. Um, th this self-possession, in the best sense of that word, the ability to, to know yourself, to manage your awareness, to manage your time, to be socially aware uh, and able to begin to construct productive relationships uh, that feels like it's uh, enormously important. I, I wonder if you have thoughts on the kinds of experiences or environments that help produce uh, agency. Yeah. I think there, there are certain types of experiences that are particularly good at um, eliciting agency in kids. And you'll see when I talk about what those are, why it is that a classroom in which children are asked to be silent, passive, and listen. Okay, and that's, that's our 20th century design. Right. 
is silent, passive, listen, and then take a test. So, what right, and the, at the secondary level, at the secondary level, it's uh, routine and compliance. Take a test. Exactly. And these things are the opposite of what you'd need if you really believe that relationships were important and that agency was a, a, a critical outcome. Correct. So if if I were to ask you what what propels you to want to work at something, if I ask myself that, I mean, part of it is that I see a real purpose in what right. I'm doing. I can identify a purpose, and I own it. I own the purpose. Or somebody hands me a problem that I need to solve, but I'm not solving it by myself. I'm solving it with three other people that are sitting around a table with me. And so when I think about purpose, I think about teamwork. I think about how the adults around me communicate my worth and their belief in me. So there are certain things that have to come together. So a stereotype of a kid who is not perceived to be intelligent, to be bright, to be worthwhile, and that's communicated to him. And that child is sitting at a desk not working with other people and not engaging. And then the assignments that are given are worksheets as opposed to projects and problems or some service to the community. In, in some sense, I wish you and others listening to this could see this little video that I saw. I did a, a global learning session in collaboration with folks at Teach for All, and they showed this video of a, a classroom in India. And, and in this classroom, you have this teacher who is speaking with such knowledge of who is in her class. And at the same time, she's enabling them to have real problems. That's the charge to them, is to identify problems in their community, to see themselves as the future solvers of those problems. And she starts to teach them why they have to work as a team, because no one person typically has the solution. And she teaches them why they have to fail and why they have to buddy up and that the success of their buddy is, is, is as important as their own success. So this story is, is a story of how you produce agency in kids. And it's not, if this classroom had no technology, it had no fancy stuff. Right. This is a human being communicating to a class of probably about 30 kids that the power was in that. I should, Pam, I I wanted, should give you the link to that. No, I, I would love to include the link in our uh, show notes, um, and I want to come back and talk about that. I want to do a quick um, I want to do a quick lightning round on a series of terms, and they all start with M. 
So um, <laughs> okay. quick, quick answers on wh why are these things important? Malleability. Um, malleability is the property of a human brain to change and grow based on exposure to environments and relationships. Um, mindsets. Why is it important to be aware of our mindset? Um, I think that one of the most powerful things that Carol Dweck did is that she knew there were plenty of us that believed that our intelligence was itself malleable, that it could grow. But she was a person who gave a name to that. And if you communicate the idea that growth is possible, change is possible, and that intelligence is not fixed, it's, it's motivating uh, to kids and it's biologically true. Um, why is modeling important, especially modeling um, regulation? Well, modeling is, is important in a, in a more global way than regulation, but children learn how to regulate their behavior and um, other, other bodily processes first through co-regulation with the adults in their lives. This is how infants learn to self-regulate. And as kids grow, the, the interaction that they have with adults teaches them how to self-soothe, how to become calm, and, and ultimately um, that dynamic interaction with an adult is what produces a self-regulatory capacity in a child. Modeling is also, I think, the springboard to developing lots of other skills because oftentimes kids have to see it before they're willing to do it. And when adults ask things of kids that don't walk the walk of it themselves, kids often see through that, particularly in adolescence. Right. Um, mindfulness. Mindfulness is a very, very well-studied um, practice through which the brain relaxes, through which the brain actually cleanses toxins uh, that build up from just days of work and thinking. And it's, it's an, a practice a little bit like exercise um, in the sense that it can be very promotive of uh, abilities to manage stress, um, to exhibit resilience, um, and also freshen, freshen the brain for additional, additional work, learning, effort. So uh, this, this is why we why we do yoga at the uh, Getting Smart office. This is um, why you do yoga, and what about your yeah. money and all your well, important? I, I don't know. That hurts so much. I'm not sure. It's occasionally mindful, <laughs> but it's often painful. What about? And speaking of of running, what about uh, movement breaks? Why and how are those important? Yeah, I think that um, what movement breaks enable kids to do is to oxygenate. I mean, the brain 
uses more oxygen than any organ in the body. And when we vary our physical activity, what we're actually varying is our oxygen uptake. So movement breaks that allow children to get up, to stretch, stretch, to even, for some kids, do a quick run. But what an effect does is deliver more oxygen to the organ in the body that uses more oxygen than any any organ, more than all your muscles combined. Love that. Um, last one, uh, maker space. Why and how and where are maker spaces and maker opportunities important? Yeah. The, a lot of the things you're referring to, and I hope, I hope your listeners know about the Edutopia video series that, uh, we collaborated on with the Seed Commission and Linda Darling Hammond and others, but there are some wonderful videos about mindfulness and videos no, I just, about. I, I watched I watched them all again last night. That's uh, it's a, an amazing resource. It's the Science of Learning and Development Initiative, right? That you and Linda yes. Darling Hammond did, and many others. And it's an Shelton extraordinary resource, right? Yeah. And and part of what we were trying to show in that, and I'll I'll mention the maker spaces, but. What we're trying to show is that there are teachers today in classrooms across the country that are using developmentally integrated practice. Anytime you talk about one practice, you'll usually hear the the refrain, oh my God, they're asking me to do another thing. When in fact, what we try to show in these videos is that there are clever things where you do one thing, but you get a benefit in three areas. So if you even talk about the simple practice of letting children choose some book, any book that they want to read, and then talk about it to the class, a teacher learns about the reading level of a child based on the the book they pick, the interest of a child. A child has to prepare to talk in front of an entire class about a book. I mean, there are 25 benefits of that simple practice. And it's slow tech. Makerspace is is an experiential learning, problem-solving um, activity. Again, where children use fine motor skills. They use math skills. They have to use planning. They have to use teamwork. So the makerspaces, like the, the classrooms I was talking about in India, are in many ways a mirror of what life is going to be for kids now because a lot of work today is work that's done in teams and involves problem solving and involves planning and, and ultimately execution that's dependent on more than one person. So a makerspace is a, is a perfect microcosm of that. Um, I'll again encourage everybody to check out the Science of Learning and Development Initiative. Uh, we'll include the link in our show notes, the videos are really terrific. They're very well produced and and they're super practical, bite-sized yep. uh, tips that are very um, u- useful in everyday classroom. Did Did you have a favorite? Well, there's it's hard, it's hard to say, but I just the um, the simple tips like modeling regulation um, mm-hmm. of the talk that a teacher you how, how she just changed the language of how she talked to her class 
describing uh, how she was experiencing what was happening in class and how it made her feel gave students the ability to use that same language to articulate, right? I think it helped them become metacognitive of their own feelings and their own behavior. And it's this is, again, as you said, not doing something additional, but just being uh, mindful about your own practice. Uh, absolutely. That was one of my favorites. My other personal favorite is the one we call the frog video. Yeah. Where she says that if you eat a frog, everything else is right. tastes good. But but she gets a student to teach an entire class executive right. skills. And so the, the, the class is taking on that language, right? There's, what's your frog? Yeah. Which means what, which are what's, you, your frog? what's the thing you don't want to do that you're gonna you're gonna start with? And it's a great way to teach um, to teach agency, right? To take control, yes. Uh, yes. to learn how to self-regulate and to self-manage. It's a beautiful thing. All right, we, yeah. we're we running out of time here. Um, I've kept you a long time. I, I would love a couple of really quick um, visual images. So if you visited Cancer Elementary School, what would you see? Um, well, I would see, I would see children uh, who were busy, um, and communicating with each other, working on different projects. And I would see a teacher free to walk around the room and um, be able to ask a child, what are you working on, and have that child explain the purpose of the thing that they're working on, or to have a child be able to say, I think we need help on this and have the teacher provide that help. And then maybe at the end of a week of working on projects, I'd like to walk into that classroom and see kids um, presenting their work to one another and getting feedback uh, from the class. And then on another day, if I walked into that class and I saw a child who was having a particularly hard time um, and maybe sitting off by him or herself, that another child in the class goes up to that child and and tries to help and and knows something about that just sitting with a child or being helpful in some way by working on something with them um, can bring them back uh, into the room. So this idea that it's not just about me, it's about right. a we, um, I'd want to see that in that classroom too. All right. If you, you visited Cantor High, what would you hope to see? The, the things that would matter a lot to me there has to do with personal leadership and personal accountability. Um, you know, I'd want the school run by the kids with teachers as close advisors. I'd want the students to feel that the faculty are their biggest champions. Um, I'd want them to have failures that they come back from and are able to talk about and understand the meaning of. 
I'd want them to have things in the community that they believe they can solve and that they use their agency and their participation skills and their um, doggedness um, in the service of solving something, you know, bigger than themselves. I'd want to hear their dreams. I'd want them to have a sense of the future that they can see as possible. And I'd want them to know at least um, a few adults that are 100% in their corner to help them make that happen. That's a beautiful picture. I, I love that idea. I'm more and more thinking about high school as a place where young people will begin to understand who they are and what they're good at and what they care about and that the adults around them help them identify and begin to make their mm -hmm. unique contribution in the world. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that picture. Um, Pam, what what are you excited about now? What what's next for you and turnaround? Uh, or or is there anything in neuroscience that you're particularly excited about? Ooh, this is a list. Okay. Well, what I'm most excited about at turnaround is that we are about to come into the world with a library of integrated tools and practices to serve the purpose and make that job easier that we've been talking about so that teachers have all kinds of interesting ways of uh, doing integrated developmental work and they're armed with the knowledge they need and practical tools and we're even doing some incredible um, resources for all of the tools for teachers who want to dig deeper in the science. So that's a beautiful thing, and I think some of it is, is ready uh, by end of this year and more next that's year. Great. And we're piloting it in all kinds of different settings, so district, charter, teacher development. So we're very excited about that. The SOLID initiative grown into its next phase, so we are building out an ecosystem of people who want to join, join us in this science to practice to policy work. Um, on the R&D side, we're doing some interesting work on measurement because this world of whole child and yep. the context influence of that we've been talking about needs um, interesting approaches to measurement. So that's an area I'm very interested in. Um, and then I'm doing a whole bunch of creative projects, like I uh, just created a learning um, experience in collaboration with Teach for All that we're going live with in July. People can sign up and take a class uh, if they're willing to invest six hours and learn about the science of learning and development and how it looks in countries across the world. I'm doing that with Stephen Farr. We love that. And... You know, there are a lot of podcasts and sort of ways of getting the message out, which is something I hope you and I will increasingly collaborate on to make this accessible to people. Hey, we we would uh, love that. Pamela Cantor, it's been a treat to have you on the Getting Smart podcast. We, we so appreciate your contribution with the team at Turn around. Um, it's been great to catch up with you. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Tom. I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you.
Thank you for having me. Thanks to Pam for joining us. We appreciate her contribution to the science of learning. To learn more about schools incorporating Cantor's lessons, check out episode 179, our Getting Smart staff observations on more than 100 school visits in 2018. If you liked today's episode, please rate and review us. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Caroline signing off.